Okay, guys, I'm excited about this episode today because I have Travis Myers here with me. He is a retired NYPD detective who agreed to join me and tell us about some of the cases he has worked on. Since retiring, Travis has gone on to become a fictional true crime writer and has published a book series with his sister, Natasha. It's called the Tommy Keene Detective Series. Their first, their first book is called Sister Margaret. Their second is Hayden John Marshall, and their third book in the series was just released in March of this year, and it's titled Jenny Black. They actually have two more books on the way, possibly coming out this year or coming out soon. So welcome, Travis. I am so glad to have you here with me today. Well, it's so nice to be with you, Kayla, and very nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. So you were a detective with the NYPD. Give me a little, not even background, but just like, how was it? How, what was your experience like? Positive? Uh, overall, yeah, overall, it was very positive. I mean, there's there's so many negatives that we have to deal with. Of course. Um, you know, I'm I'm going back. You know, twenty. I've I've been retired for twenty years now. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, no, I it was something that as a child I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and oh, so yes, in a way, I I was one of the the few people that actually lived their dream. I wanted to be a police officer, but more more so, I wanted to be a a detective. I uh, just it attracted me. It appealed to me. And in the end, that's what I ended up being. And, uh, you know, how was it? Um, it's a very, very interesting job. Mm-hmm. How's that? It's diff- something different every day. Uh, you know, yes, there are a lot of incredibly negative things that you have to deal with. But at the same time, there's a lot of positivity, uh, a lot of really great camaraderie. Some of the, I've met some of the best people in my life through that job. I love that. And it's also a job that, as tough as it can be, you laugh a lot. Yeah. So You make good friends. Like you said, you meet good people. Did you, sure. because you guys, I'm sure, see a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things you have to deal with that are very hard. And my dad, he works as a paramedic. So, you know, sometimes right along with police officers, just depending on the call. But he has seen a lot of people and has struggled himself with PTSD. Was that something you saw really prevalent, like among police officers? I just think I wanted to talk a little bit about just the police force, because there is especially lately, like a very negative view a lot of the times with, you know, police forces. And I, I like to give people like a little bit of insight into their job and like the good people that are doing these hard jobs. And yeah, of course there's, you know, bad eggs wherever in every form of life, but I love to kind of bring that out and just show people that these are humans. They're good people doing hard work and it really affects you guys. Oh, well, it absolutely does. Um, now, I mean, myself, I, I, overall, you know, myself, my brother, many of my friends, you know, police officers, detectives. Um, geez, where do I want to start with that? Because it was kind of a broad question. I know. So, um, yeah, it's all right. So as far as like PTSD itself, well, of course, it's prevalent, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, my daughter would say, oh, no, you have to suffer from a dad. I don't feel that I do, personally. That's great. You know, mm-hmm. um, but obviously it's a big thing. I mean, Cops, very high suicide rate for police officers, very high divorce rate for police officers. So, yes, it certainly does exist. Um, and there are things, uh, you know, that your father's dealt with, that I've dealt with, that soldiers, firemen, etc., people that deal with. There are things that you simply cannot be unseen. Right. Okay? Yes. When you go to crime scenes, when you, when you deal with, you know, horrific events, once you see them, they're with you forever. Right. All right? You, you'll remember them, you know, that there are, there are certain cases that, uh, not to sound cold, there are certain, you know, people that you deal with that when, when they're murdered, uh, no matter how horrifically you realize that this is the life that they chose, okay? You know, dealing with the drug world, with, with criminals in general. Um, and that, you know, conversely, there are so many just innocent people yeah. that wanted nothing more than to go to work that day. You know, than to, to spend time with their children, their families. They just want to be left alone. And these victims can really, really just rip your heart out, yeah. you know. And, and quite often, regardless of how these cases go, you know, there's a saying, you know, that there really is no justice. Mm-hmm. And what do I mean by that? No matter what punishment befalls the criminal for committing their criminal act, all right, uh, no justice can ever be given back to the family 
who've who've lost a loved one or or that or have lost their life. You know, you can never, you can't continue on with your hopes, your dreams, whatever it is, because it's, it's been stolen from you. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I actually love that you said that because yeah, I I've never heard it put like that, and that that's great. There really is no justice. Yeah, they lost their life. Like, there's no bringing that back. There's a small sliver of good you can see when they're put behind bars but it will never compare to yeah the loss that the family has suffered you're gone yes and then you know again your your husband wife mothers brothers sisters all these people have to carry that around with them for the rest of their lives also Mm -hmm. you know regardless of what happens to the criminal after the fact this is you know completely secondary yes you know yes and um so yeah quite quite often there is no true justice that's justice is never served yeah that that there could not be a more true statement now with that you did bring some cases to talk about that you have you know worked on yourself do we want to go ahead and dive into those absolutely what would you like to hear just just get started with some yeah me and you sort of talked about you know one that you had so let's start with that one uh a young catholic school girl who uh went missing Back in the '90s in the Bronx, you know where I where I worked, and um, it, 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 well, we'll just tell the story, and you you'll decide just how terrible it is itself once it's over. So um, she doesn't come home after school, mm-hmm. okay, and everybody's in a panic. Yeah, you know. So where is she? Where is she? And you know, uh, it goes out over the radio. Everybody on patrol is looking for. Her, comes to the detective squad. Uh, detectives are looking for. Her. Um, we're looking. We're looking. We're looking. This young woman's name is. Katie, she's 16 years old, mm. and again, she simply didn't come home right. after school when, when she was supposed to. Uh, the first day goes on, and really nothing's found, nothing at all, okay? Mm-hmm. Following the day shows up, she's still missing, you know? Quite often when these things happen, and, and you hate to be uh, take things lightly at all, and we don't by any means, right? but more often than not, you know, it's a mistake, mm-hmm. you know, in that she didn't call home. She didn't show up. She was went shopping. She was out with her girlfriend. She was out with a boyfriend maybe she wasn't supposed to be with. Mm-hmm. Who knows what happened? You never know. But in the end, you know, hopefully we find them. Yeah, you know? that's kind of the hope uh, that it is just something It's always the hope. And usually the case. More, nine times out of ten, that is the case. Right. You know? Uh, and this time she did not come home. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next day, again, the search continues. Uh, you know... People are a little bit more panicked because it's been overnight. It's just, it's unheard of. Uh, her, nothing unusual uh, family-wise. She's got a, um, both of her parents were immigrants from Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was um, born in America. Her and her sister were both born in America. They were about, I don't know, I think 18 months apart, the two, the two girls. Um, and it was nothing suspicious that way, you know? Right. The father was a carpenter. The mother worked in a bakery. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, very nice as normal as possible family, as far as we could tell, right? Right. Uh, we checked, talked to everybody at the school. Uh, school kids and her friends had nothing to say. You know, they didn't know. Everybody said goodbye at the end of the day. And again, nothing, mm-hmm. right? Um, search and search and search. And everybody's looking, you know, everywhere that you could possibly look. <laughs> On the third day, we get a very interesting break in the case. In that uh, one of her girlfriends mm-hmm. comes forward. And says, yes, uh, we had been the last uh, day or two um, meeting up with some boys over on Bainbridge Avenue after school. And we were going and, you know, Katie and I and another girlfriend were just going to have a little adventure, Uh you know. And they were meeting up with these young men and, you know, getting high, smoking some marijuana. Mm -hmm. Okay. And... uh, you know, they were young and cute, just like these young girls, a little bit older. They were, these these young men were, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. Okay. Um, and I know that Katie went to meet one, this young man named Malik. So this okay. time she's going by herself? By herself. Okay. Correct. So they had met these boys twice before, okay? Mm-hmm. And, you know, smoked some marijuana and were flattered and flirty and everybody right. was having a good mm-hmm. time. Nothing, you know, no no actual dating, nothing yeah. sexual had happened, yeah. okay? And then this third time, she decided she was going to go and meet this fellow Malik all by herself, mm-hmm. all right? And never came back. Now, uh, her girlfriend, this girlfriend that came forward, was terrified 
to say anything because she didn't want to be involved. I was going to say. She didn't want to rat out her girlfriend. Okay. She didn't want to get in trouble with her own parents. She didn't want to get in trouble with the school, whatever it was. And she allowed this whole day, day and a half to pass by before she couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. So she knew that her friend was going to meet this boy, but she was probably hoping that nothing bad would come of it. Even when she was missing, like hopefully she just shows up back home. But as time went on, she's kind of starting to what feel sort of guilty because she's keeping it to herself to kind of keep herself out of trouble, keep her friend out of trouble. But as the days go on, she's realizing that this is more serious. So now we can have, you know, a little bit, we have a better interview with her. We have some facts. We have some things we can put together. Mm-hmm. We pull the other friend in who basically just agrees with everything that, that this other one, young woman told us. Uh, so we have a little something to go on, but not much. All we have are two first names, Malik and Dwayne, nothing else. And we know that Malik was the one that Katie was interested in. Mm-hmm. Other than that, we have nothing. All right? We know where they uh, had smoked on Bainbridge Avenue, where they had met the two times before. And from what, I, what we've learned, too, these two times were very short. It was l- less than an hour, maybe, each time that they had gotten together. So really, they didn't know these boys at all, right. you know, but they had met them a couple of times. Oh, so sadly, you know, although we ran names and, you know, looked at numbers, we talked to, you know, the SNU guys, that's the Street Narcotics Enforcement Unit guys uh, of, of the local area, you know, we reached out to... Missing persons, we, we reach out to everybody you can reach out for, you know, just trying to find mm-hmm. where this girl might be. Right. Days go by. Days mm-hmm. go by, and we have nothing, nothing, and nothing. And now it's getting really, really scary. Uh, quite often, um, I'm sure things have changed, but at the time, you know, it used to be, and I'm sure it is too, you know, uh, most missing people, when they truly go missing, truly missing people, um, sadly are dead usually within the first three hours. All oh, right? So now at this stage of the game, we're talking three, four, yeah. five days with nothing. Um, and remember back then now too, we had no cell phones. You know, it, yeah. cell phones were out, but they were brand new. You know, so like I didn't have a cell phone myself. Mm-hmm. You know, we were still working off of pagers. Okay. This young girl had nothing. She had no credit cards for us to follow. No pings off of her cell phone, which are so common now, that was really, you are very limited in what you can do. You know, it truly is the, the, the walking around, asking questions, mm-hmm. you know? Um, now, back then, we used to have a thing, uh, it's funny, like, uh, every time you hear people talking on the news about how we have to reform the police, it's always, we need more community policing. Well, back then, we had a thing called CPOP, which was community policing. There's nothing new about that. It's been around for decades but it's more of a political talking point, if you will. Okay. All right. But our CPOP people uh, were actually out. Um, I'm, I want to. I want to. I'm going to say this was like eight days later. Okay. Okay. Our CPOP people were out. They were on Jerome Avenue. All right. And Jerome Avenue, to paint a little picture for you, it is. It's an L. An L is an elevated train. It's where the subway comes out of the ground. Okay. Okay. And it runs above. So it's 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 a big train that goes over right down the middle of the the. The avenue with big pillars coming down, holding it up, you know, and cars underneath. Um, and where we worked, it was, you know, a, a, a choice spot for prostitution. Oh. So they were out there and they were reaching out to prostitutes, making sure they're safe and, you know, getting enough to eat. You know, can we help you? All this kind of, you know, nice uh, community policing type thing. Mm-hmm. And who do they come across? Katie. Oh. They find her. She's there. Wow. She's alive. Okay, uh-huh. and they get her, and they basically pull her off the street. Okay, and so here, no great investigation on our part found it. Luck found her, you know. And the she's fact, there. Well, exactly. What I'm saying is that it wasn't that it was a, a tremendous uh, on our end. It wasn't a tremendous investigation that found her. Okay, she was found by another group of police officers who were reaching out who were smart enough to recognize her, smart wow. enough to realize that she was 16 years old mm-hmm. and, you know, not a grown-up. No, if she's working as a sex worker at 16 years old, that's actually not working as one. At it. That's like being trafficked, pretty much. Well, that's exactly what yeah. it is. Yes. And so what had happened in the end, okay, is our uh, these young fellas, Malik and Twain, uh, were part they were young they were young men they were like I think eighteen and nineteen mm-hmm. which one is which I couldn't remember but they were eighteen and nineteen years old uh, 
But, you know, again, being street kids from the Bronx, I mean, they were incredibly mature, incredibly savvy, and, and professional criminals, okay? Mm-hmm. They had uh, brought her, and they belonged to a larger gang. Um, this that Where they had met was on Bainbridge Avenue, so you have to go, like, maybe three or four blocks over okay. to Creston Avenue, okay? And they belonged to a gang over there on Creston Avenue that sold a lot of marijuana, uh, crack, uh, heroin, all kinds of stuff. A lot mm-hmm. of things, bad things went on there. Um, and that's part of, that's right next to St. James Park. Mm-hmm. On the other side of St. James Park, which is only a block wide, is Jerome Avenue, where they found this young lady. Okay. And what they had done, basically, is, again, they had met her. They had gotten high together. Okay. And they had laced her marijuana with crack cocaine. Oh. Okay. And in the, while this is all happening, and this is, of course, after the, the interviews and the investigation... Um, they had taken Katie over to Creston Avenue and continued to get high, okay? Mm-hmm. Drinking, drugging, going on and on. Um, according to the young men, they had sex consensually, all right? Mm-hmm. Katie had admitted, or I shouldn't say admitted, because that sounds like there was some wrongdoing on her part, and there absolutely was no wrongdoing on her part. Right. But that she did, you know, make out with Malik, but didn't want to go any further. Yeah. Okay? Mm-hmm. Well, so... They raped her repeatedly, oh. okay? They shared her, you know, with other members of the gang. Um, and then horrifying. after two or three days of this and completely breaking her spirit, they turned her out and made made a prostitute of her at 16 years of age. And all of this took literally two or three days. Wow. Okay? And then she had been working out there for the next, you know, four to five days, all right? And then with countless men... You know, strange men who would just pull up on their car, terrified, you know, completely riddled and feared to, to say no, you know, and did whatever she had to do to make her. And, and, and the sad thing, and I want to say sad thing, the whole thing is so tragic. It's so tragic. But what people don't realize either with these, uh, you know, quite often these these women and children and men, mm-hmm. you know, who were forced into prostitution either physically and or by, uh, uh, you know, drug use. I mean, they're not making a lot of money. Right. You know? They, they, they could be getting into somebody's car for literally $10, mm-hmm. you know? $20 to have all kinds of, you know, unspeakable things done to them. Yeah. All right? Against their will, even though they're doing it, you know, it yes. is still against their will. And so if you can imagine that you're going to do that and still make, you know, three or $400 a night, how many people you have to see a day? Yeah, I'm trying to do this as gingerly and, and as possible when I tell you these stories without being too graphic for your audience. But it is—it's a—it's a, a good ridiculously point. horrible thing for anybody to go to go through, and I can't imagine something like this happening to you know a 16-year-old girl, who, you know, yes, she was out for an adventure, she was bored, you know, but and she did not literally yeah, deserve that. In hours, her entire life, you know, went from, yeah, I mean. It, it's at 16. What are you in 10th grade? Yeah. And you know? I, I think it's a great point to say that, yes, she was out there doing it, but people don't realize how often these people are forced into it. First of all, 16 years old, like that she can't be out there consenting to do that first, you know, and then even adult people adult women are often forced into it and people want to think they're making these decisions and maybe some of them are, but a lot of times, like you said, it's because they're brought into it because of drug use and people are using that against them to get them into this. Or like Katie, she was taken advantage of by these men. She's traumatized in them raping her for multiple days and then they throw her out there. What, you know, what is she supposed to do? She's scared. She has no idea what's happening to her. She was drugged with crack cocaine that she did not choose to take. It's just, it's horrifying. And yes, I do think people need to realize that people that are out on the streets are not always just making that choice to be there. No, nobody, nobody wants to live that life, Kayla. Um, and I, I, my heart goes out to, to prostitutes and, and the homeless, you know, homeless mm-hmm. people are there because they're out of their minds. Right. All right. They don't, nobody chooses, you know, you'll have these idiot advocates that you'll see 
who will say, well, people have a choice. No, it's not their choice. Right. It's not their choice. They're not wanting they, they have They have mental difficulties. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not on a medication that they should be on. You know, decades ago, um, you know, in New York, well, countrywide, but in New York, I remember it because I grew up in it. Um, you know, the, the politicians uh, deinstitutionalized people because the in- institutions were looked down upon, oh. right? Mm-hmm. But what do they do with them? They put them on the street. So it's like they gave they them nowhere no to go. other option. So they like take away one exactly. thing that might not be great, but then they give them no other option. They just exactly send There's them no out there on their own. Young girl or young woman in the world that decides mm-hmm. and says, "Hey, uh, I'm going to be a prostitute today," you know? Right. And we've done the same thing now. And and when I say that now, saying prostitute is is somewhat of a pejorative. Mm-hmm. Well, it is what it is. Saying sex worker is, again, a political way to make it sound nicer. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. nothing nice about this life. Right. Please, people understand. Listeners, understand. There's nothing good or nice about this life at all. It's it's a hard, hard way to live your life. Yeah. You know, again, we'll, 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 say, we'll say sex worker because it's so much nicer to them. What, they, what it is is they're victims. They're, 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 yes. they're victims of very evil people who yes, take advantage of them. Yes, they are. Mm-hmm. And and it's just so unbelievably sad and so heartbreaking. That is and that's a, so that's a, sad. a sad and heartbreaking story for you right there of a young missing girl. When they found her, was she like, did they just say like, hey, we recognize you, like you've been missing? Was she quick to take them up? Was she scared? Because I know a lot of victims. Um, I think of the Elizabeth Smart story right here out of Utah, which is where my mom lives who does, you know, co-host with me on the podcast. And, you know, when she was kidnapped out of her house and there were two times that police officers came up to her. And the first time they let her kidnapper go with her free because she had, you know, her head covered and all this stuff. And she refused to say that she was Elizabeth Smart, that she was a kidnapped girl, even though there was a police officer right there because she was just so terrified. So I didn't know if Katie was quick to take up well, on from this. what i understand i wasn't privy to it since i wasn't there at the moment mm-hmm. you know i was there after the fact um for her what i understand is you know it came out in conversation mm-hmm. w- within a five or ten minute you know conversation yeah. that they were having they realized that she was very young mm-hmm. they knew that we were looking for this young woman and it was put together right away she did yes please take me home yeah that's all she wanted to do was to go Aww. home and I think in her case, not only did she have a good home to go to, okay, everything was still so fresh and new and so traumatizing and so just, yes, save me. But what this will do will bring us into another story, yeah. okay, um, which uh, I think we touched on briefly before in our conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, uh, actually, I was a detective at the time. I was working in anti-crime. Okay. Uh, and anti-crime is you know, plainclothes officers, and we go out and we basically, you know, look for people with guns. That's basically okay. what you do all day. Look for people with guns, for robbers, for bad guys, but you're in plain clothes and in a plain car. Um, okay. And, and you don't really answer the radio. Now, we you will if something's happening, but it's not like patrol where you're chained to the radio and you go on calls. You're just out there proactively trying to find bad guys when you're right. an anti-crime. Okay. So that's, you know, description aside, let's get to the story. Uh a call had come over about a fight with two men and a young woman on the, on the uh, sidewalk. And I want to say, I'm pretty sure it was on 204th Street in the Bronx. Okay. And where they um, they were coming out of a pizzeria and they had an argument and, you know, some, some blows or slaps were done and then thrown into the car. All right. They threw her into the car, rather. Mm-hmm. Well, we were like two blocks away at the time. We'll drive over to see what we can see, see what we can find, you know. And bang, there's the car, all right? We put her over the radio, a central, you know, uh, anti-crime unit. We're, we have the car in sight, and we followed them. Um, so we didn't put our lights and sirens on. We wanted to see where they were going, what was going to happen, all right? And I want to say, well, we, we went south, and uh, they actually crossed the, the park at Fordham Road, going into another precinct, over into the 4-7 precinct. Okay. And as they... Uh, entered the other precinct, they got locked up. When I say locked up, they got stuck between uh, some other cars, and we were all kind of stuck, stuck, nowhere to go. Okay. Great, because they can't run on us now, yes. you know? 
Me and my partner jump out. We got our guns out. You know, please, please don't move. Everybody out of the car. We pull them out of the car. They were completely, I mean, very easygoing. All three of them, very, very easygoing people, okay? Oh, no problem, no problem. What's going on? Oh, they, they were shocked that we grabbed them. Yank them all over the car. We start talking to them. You know what happened? We know you had a problem over on 204th Street. You know, we separate the, the, the woman from the men. And as we're chatting them up, I mean, nothing was going on. Oh, we had, yeah, we had a disagreement at the pizzeria, blah, 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 blah. It turned out that they were working on the... Uh, a couple of miles over on the other side of the Bronx at a carnival that they had set up over by, um, oh, forgive me, I can't think of the name of the park right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, you know, they had a carnival set up and they were, they were, they were all carnies. Okay. All right? And um, all three of them were, they all worked at the same thing. We had a disagreement and what said, okay, well, you know what we want to do? We're going to take you back. We're going to go back, you know, to the carnival, mm-hmm. and just check out your story and make sure everything is cool. Right. Okay? And they were, okay, no problem. But we want to take, the girl's going to go in our car, you guys go in your car, and we'll follow you there. Mm-hmm. Okay? This is you guys saying nope. that to them. You brought them. To them. With Correct. Them. I'm okay. sorry if I'm, yeah. No, nope. if, if I was so just took, making sure. We, we took the young woman, we took the young woman, put, put her in the backseat of a car. Nobody's under arrest. Mm-hmm. Nobody's got handcuffs on. Nobody's in trouble. Right. We just want to make sure... Everything is cool. Yeah. Okay? I'm glad you did that and had her go with we, you. We drive, we drive over there. And as we're talking, okay, we end up, this girl has got a couple of different names. She told us one name, not just telling us another name. Okay. Mm-hmm. Unusual, strange. It's very obvious that, you know, she's a, uh, uh, how shall I put it gently? You know, a, a lower class person. She's fooling around with drugs. She's, you know, very young, but uh, she's not looking well. Yeah, okay? she's And so we talked to her. We're trying, trying to get everything we can get out of her, but let, letting her come forward to us. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, when we get there, again, we get out. We talk to these gentlemen again. Uh, it turns out, make a long story short in the end, okay, they all work together at the carnival. Mm-hmm. They were having a problem, okay, at the pizzeria, you know, while they were out driving around, checking out the Bronx while they were there. And they got into a fight. Right. This young woman, okay, had been uh, a missing person some three years before. And I want to say it was Indiana or Iowa. It was one of these Midwestern states, okay, that she had disappeared from, okay. Again, got mixed up in drugs, got mixed up up in prostitution, got mixed up in everything wrong, all right? Mm -hmm. Ended up going to work for this carnival, okay? Because she felt that she had nothing in the world, okay? While in the carnival, she continued to, you know, fool around with drugs because that's quite often a life that they lead, you know? You know, did continue to prostitute herself both to the other carnies and to customers along the way, you know, Johns that she would meet, Going from state to state to state to state. Because she had fallen into this life, okay? And again, in the end, I really don't know what it was. All I know is what we could talk about and what she shared with us. Right. But she fell into this life of, of you know, just complete destitution um, because of the drug use, because of the uh, physical and sexual abuse. Yeah. And she was afraid, ashamed, embarrassed. How could she go home? Oh. You know, how could she return? And again, I have no idea what her family was like, mm-hmm. um, but she desperately wanted to, but wouldn't. Oh, that's sad. And did, so she knew Do you see that, what I'm saying? Yeah. No, back to, back to your point before how people, she carried her own stigma with, you her. know, about the life that she was living. Right. And did not escape it. Instead of it, she became a part of it. Right. It's like it consumed her. So she wants to go home to her family, who I'm sure was very much missing her, very worried. And she just couldn't get herself to go home. And that's devastating. She, I'm sure she. And she at the time was still listed as a missing person in that state that she came from, Mm -hmm. you know. But of course we have, though I know, and now she's an adult. There's nothing that we could really do for her or or do to her. We couldn't take her into custody and send her home. You know, she's um, an adult. She can make her decision to be out there. We gave her all the social service information that we could. Mm -hmm. You know, now, of course, now she's crying and, you know, just so beat up and sad. And when I say beat up, you know, emotionally beat up. Such a broken, broken human being. Mm -hmm. And 
oh god, it was just it's so heartbreaking. It, it's to, heartbreaking. To think of the life that's a- yeah, that she she felt that bad about herself that she's staying there being abused obviously with these men that are not treating her well and are no, I'm sure taking advantage no, of her whole life wasn't treating her well there was mm-hmm. nothing in her life that was going well yeah this poor thing you know mm-hmm. and but again on our end there was nothing legal for us to do yeah Were, are you, know? you even legally allowed to like contact the family of an adult missing person like are you allowed to say hey you're no. fa- you're not we can't make her do anything yeah so okay? even her family now, what we did be what we did do okay is we did take her back to the precinct mm-hmm. we just took all of her information we filled everything out mm-hmm. and again it was all nice nice we're not you know nobody's in trouble yeah okay you can do whatever you want to do mm-hmm. um we gave her all of the uh um uh, What's the word I want to use? Social service information. You know, please, you know, we, we have people you can talk to. If you need anything, there are victim services that can help you. But again, at the moment, she's not a victim of a crime. Right. She's just she's just living a terrible, terrible life, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and in the end, you know, from all I understand is she went back to the carnival and we never saw her again. Oh. You know, because she's gone to the next, she's off to the next city. But what we were able to do is contact the state she was from and say, look, she's no longer a missing person. You as a state, the local authorities no longer have to worry about her. She's off the books. Oh, okay. Case closed, sort mm-hmm. of, because we have her name, her information, her photograph, et cetera, et cetera. Here's yeah. everything. We've made contact with her. She is alive. She's working for this carnival, you know, whatever the name of the carnival, you know, something brothers carnival. I can't remember what okay. it was. Um, probably shouldn't say it on the air anyway, you know, <laughs> but uh you know, so that yeah, just just a, a sad, sad, so sad. State of event. So can the Very local sad. police who was were probably working with her family, like I'm sure, you know, when people are, call like, hey, is there a lead on my family member? Were, would they then be allowed to be like, yes, she is off the missing person Absolutely. Yes. list because someone came in contact with her? Absolutely. So she's no longer a missing person. We know where she we know she's alive. We know she's well so to speak, uh, this is where she's working. This is the company, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the carnival that she's and working with. And that's kind of where they you know? leave it at. Like, yeah. And well, again, once you're an adult yeah, too, and, and it's, it's crazy too, because you have to remember, you know, at 18, now you're an adult. And this woman, it was probably like, I don't know, I want to say 20, 24 in that neighborhood somewhere, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but you know, she was missing for as long, you know, for years. And if she refuses to go, if she refuses to come with us, we can't force her. Yeah. She hasn't committed a crime. 1000%. And she's an adult. She can yeah. do what she wants. And even though it's devastating, if she was, you know, never did get in back in contact with her family, like, oh, my heart breaks for like her mom, if she had a mom out there and, you know, whatnot. But it is like, it, it was probably a nice relief for them to at least know she's alive. Because after three years, you would likely be thinking that your child or your loved one is probably not around anymore for me maybe that's just where my head goes but after three years of them being missing it's like well are they even alive so at least that would be like a sliver of hope for her family to know like okay she's out there maybe she'll come back one day that actually there was just a case there was just a teen found in Utah. He had been missing for two years. The police come across him at a gas station, I think. I don't know all the details for sure, but they come across this kid. And I I think he's older at this point, maybe closer to 18. And he had, they find out that he had been a missing person for two years and from California. And I watched the video where they told his family and it was just like, heartwarming because the police were like hey we got this picture of this kid from utah like they think that it's your son and they showed them and they were just like so relieved they start crying and i was like that would be the biggest relief to find out that someone who has been missing for years is then alive even though i'm very sad for her that you know she didn't feel like she could go home i hope one day she was able to feel like she could. I hope one day she was able to reconnect with her family. 
Yeah, well, so often, you know, for us on our end, in, in the police world, besides that you're constantly bombarded with, you know, the next case after next case mm-hmm. after next case, yeah. and, and things ravel away, sadly, we don't know what happens to most of these people in the end. And that'd be you know? hard to not have, yeah. like, that closure and, like, know that people, you know, I feel like you'd somewhat, even in a short amount of time, a couple hours, you kind of get to know this person, like somewhat of a bond, even if it's a small bond, and then you just never know if they were okay. That would be you hard never for know. me. No. Yeah. It's 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 a very strange it's a very strange thing. And again, it's something that your you know, your father, back to the doing yeah. the EMT thing, um, you know, he's police officers, EMTs in particular, firemen to some extent, um, nurses, mm-hmm. you know, especially emergency room nurses. Right step in and out of people's lives yeah, in such dramatic fashion, in right. such dramatic moments, mm-hmm. all right? I mean, the biggest thing that happens in your life, I mean, a, a terrible accident, a, a heart attack, mm-hmm. um, a, an awful crime, who knows what it is, these people step in, you know, hopefully makes, you know, uh, help out in some way, you yeah. know, um, and then poof, it's it's gone. Mm-hmm. It's over. They're you know? like there for this uh, huge and it's, moment in someone's it's life. It's dramatic for everybody involved. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. For the for the the nurse, the EMT, the cop, the detective, the fireman, whoever it is, you know, bang, they're in your life. They're doing everything they can do in their power to help you for that those minutes, hours, days, whatever it is. And then it's Kayla, they never see you again. Yep. Ex- That's it. Exactly. My you even know? my mom who I is the co-host on this podcast. She works as a nurse in the NICU with her husband, who is a doctor in the NICU. So that's neonatal little premature babies. And, you know, they are there for nurses. Uh, many are, times truly yeah. are angels of mercy. They are amazing, amazing. People. I spent so much time in emergency rooms, you know, due mm-hmm. to my prior profession. And I have seen them, right. you know, go from just such unbelievably intense, you know, deep, deep, life-threatening emergencies and turning around and being so sweet and gentle and then turning around and barking at some doctor who's got his head up his ass and doesn't know what he's doing. (laughs) And I'm not knocking doctors, but believe me, it's the nurses that run the emergency rooms, all right? (laughs) And the way that they can do that day Uh, in, day out, 12-hour shifts, you know, uh, you know, I, I love them. I think nurses are amazing, amazing people. And it's an impossible job yeah. that, yeah. again, you know, uh, people love or hate the police and nobody ever understands our job. I think that nurses get yeah. way less respect than they deserve. And the same with EMTs too. EMT is, is a crazy job, you know, to, to put things into perspective. And in when I was, you know, back in the 90s when crack was crazy and, you know, New York City had over 2,400 homicides a year, it was... It was a Wild West situation. In the Bronx, all the EMT, EMTs wow. wore bulletproof vests because they never knew what they were getting into. Wow. And every time uh-huh. a, uh, uh, an aided case that's, you know, somebody in need of an EMT, an aided case would come over, the police would accompany them. Police would, patrol guys would go and meet them at the door just right. in case because you never know what you're getting yourself mixed up in. Wow. And people don't give EMTs credit for that. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, I was going to kind of ask you about the Bronx because, and correct me if I'm wrong and excuse me if I like, this is offensive, but when I think of the Bronx, for some reason, I think like dangerous and that (laughs) might not be true at all. Again, I'm from small town Idaho. So compared to Idaho Falls where I live, it is probably more dangerous, but for some, I don't know if I've just heard the Bronx talked about a lot and whatnot. And, you know, you've said that that's where you were working. So I was wondering, what is the crime rate there? Very high. I love the Bronx. And, you know, I spent so many years there. Uh, Mm -hmm. My wife is from the Bronx. You know, I have so many friends from the Bronx. Um, But the Bronx Uh is a very sad place. Okay. And just to throw, throw a little bit of stuff at you so you understand. So the Bronx, all right, yeah, you can live in a million dollar house in the Bronx. There are very nice neighborhoods in the Bronx. Um, funny enough, like Riverdale, you know, where the Archies are from. Oh, yeah, I don't know if you yeah. remember the Archies. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's R- Riverdale's in the Bronx and Riverdale is a very nice, very expensive, very exclusive area. So much so that 
the rest of the Bronx jokes that it's not part of the Bronx. Okay, <laughs> like it's its own um, area. Exactly, and there are there are several you know smaller you know nice little neighborhoods here and there, but for the most part, it's a very very depressed place. It is the poorest county mm. per capita. Oh. In the state of New York. That's sad. Uh, what th- these these are the things that I'm going to try to get into your head now that you kind of think about a little bit. So here it is, per capita, the poorest county in New York. You can walk across the bridge into Manhattan, which is the richest county. New York County, Manhattan is New York County, is the richest county, possibly in the nation. Forget about the state. That's crazy okay? that it's right there. It is crazy how much money is in New York City. And again, right over the bridge, it's not. Now, some years ago, and this may have changed, so if I'm, if I'm wrong and some listeners know I'm wrong, I apologize, but I remember reading it in the paper, the last bookstore closed in the Bronx. Okay, so the Bronx had, had or still has no bookstores. Okay, no physical bookstores. It was down to uh, two movie theaters, and I think one of them closed, so they have one movie theater left in the Bronx. Okay, and it's down on 161st Street, hmm. uh, next to the courthouses. Yeah. So you so you have this in your head now, okay? Okay. No bookstores, one movie theater. Now, what I want to what I'm going to tell you now is the population of the Bronx is about the size of the population of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Which is like insanity okay? that there would be. If no I were to say there were no bookstores in the city of Philadelphia. You would say, think that's the craziest thing you've ever heard. <laughs> right. Okay, yeah. it's about three times bigger than the population of Boston. Wow. The Bronx is huge. Yeah. It's like 1.4 million people live there. Okay, and they they don't have a bookstore or their choice of movie theaters to go to, which is tremendously sad. It is. And again. They can they can hop on the train, you know. People, the good people of the Bronx can hop on the train and you know go to New York City or or go up to Westchester County, you know where the money is and see movies and do stuff. But why would you have to travel from your own borough? Yeah. Okay. It's just not fair. And 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 I'm also a firm believer, you know. So many people like to, I mean, especially when we're talking about crime and sad things and things that you know. Oh, the world is going to hell. People are awful. Personally, I believe that. Ninety percent of the world's population are decent people. Agree. Okay. Now they may not be my kind of people or your kind of people. We may not get along <laughs> right. together. You know, for whatever reason, there's a million different reasons we might not like each other. Absolutely. You know? But that doesn't make me an evil person or you an evil person because we don't see eye to eye. Yes. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. If if it was more than that, I mean, it would truly be hell on earth. I mean, we would just be fighting and killing left and right and, you know, struggling for food and struggling for survival. It's a scary thought. So even in the Bronx, the vast majority of people are really good people, are Mm -hmm. really decent people who want nothing more than to, you know, have something better for their children, have a better life, you know, have a life. Um, But unfortunately, there's a larger percentage, you know, and this comes with poverty anyway. There's a large percentage of people who are opportunists and who will take advantage. Yeah. You know? Yep. And they do. And so if you're living in a building, you know, a simple, you know, 10, maybe 20 family building, and one apartment in that building decides they're going to sell drugs or, you know, have what you're building a shot now. It's at your doorstep. And if you have a block and you have one or two of those buildings, you know, maybe just there's, there's 20, maybe 40 buildings on your block, and one or two of them are those buildings, well, now your block is shot. Yeah, that's horrible. Because every every savage in the neighborhood is coming to buy their drugs, you know? Yeah. And they're all toting knives and guns, you know? And they're all looking to, again, back to the opportunistic thing, to take advantage of somebody else. Which is just so sad. I hate that. It's very, very, very sad. Now, the next time, you know... You're visiting New York City and you're eating at some fancy Italian or French restaurant, you know, where you're paying top dollar. Know that the people that are cooking your food and serving you those foods, they get on the subway and they go back to the Bronx. Yeah, they're... Because that's where they live. Yep, makes sense. Or to Queens or to Brooklyn or to New Jersey, wherever it is, but that's where they live. Because, sadly, the majority of those people can't afford to live in New York. Don't get me wrong, Manhattan, New York City proper... It's got a lot of, still still has some fairly bad areas itself, you know? But, and when I say bad, again, bad is, is I don't like to say the word bad. 
because the people are not bad. The situation is bad. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I, I, lo- I love that you're pointing that out. So you've used this real experience, your real experience over in New York as an NYPD detective, all of that to write some books. And they're pretty cool. Go ahead and kind of tell my listeners about that. What we do is uh, when we decided to do this, like I told you earlier, my sister and I decided to write these books kind of on a goof. You know, because I'm one of those guys, if you get me going, I'll talk for hours, you know. And people always say, hey, you know, you ought to write a book. You ought to write a book. Um, well, that idea never entered my mind. But then I thought of my sister, who I like to say is the smart one. And I called her up one day and I said, hey, Tosh, Natasha, I called her Tosh. What do you think? Would you like to do a book with me? You know, I'll tell you the story and then you craft it into what a book should be. Immediately she said yes. She loved the idea. All right. And so we set out and we wrote Sister Margaret. And Sister Margaret, just like the other, the other two books that are out now, are all real cases. However, okay, we've changed them. We've, you know, changed the names. We've changed the stories. We've twisted them and tied them into, you know, knots that are completely different from the real stories. But, you know, I didn't really, they didn't come out of my imagination, I basically plagiarized real life, <laughs> if you will. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So these are real stories. Absolutely. That you came up with, like, not that you came up with, that you experienced, and then you are keeping it, like, anonymous. So you're changing the names, but these are real life experiences. Yes. And the other thing I love that we kind of talked about earlier was that you said you were, you know, you name all your books by the name of the victim, even though these victims in the stories are, you know, anonymous, you're still paying tribute in that book to the victim. I'm sorry. We thought that was important. Um, And from our, from mine and your prior conversation, you know, uh, we can go ahead and, and name dozens of serial killers, but you can't name a single victim. Exactly. Think about like Ted Bundy, like who are the people that he murdered? Literally, if you're listening to this, like think, who did he kill? Do you know or do you just know the name Ted Bundy? Right here talking to you now, I couldn't name one. And I bet you most people can. And it's disgraceful. Totally. It's disgraceful. Yeah. So I love that with your books, you are doing this like victim focus. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And, and, And know that that is intentional. We want to, you know, again, although they're fictional, pay homage to the victims. Amazing. Where can we find your books? Well, we're very happy to say that they are available everywhere. Okay? Um, mm-hmm. Everywhere. Love now, it. Now, uh, that doesn't mean it might not be on the, the bookshelf when you go there to your local bookstore, but they can certainly order it. Mm-hmm. Okay? And, um, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, all those big ones, they all carry us. Um, and, you know, and of course today everything is online anyway, but you can yes. get it via Kindle, um, hardcover, soft cover. Uh, what is Barnes and Noble has their own Kindle? What is it? Nook, Ooh, you know, all know, of these yeah. things, you know, it's available everywhere. We're happy to say, and, Ooh. um, everything except for audio. We haven't, we haven't delved into that yet, which is something that we, we may do as we gain popularity and we're super That's happy. Really cool. Thank, let me thank anybody that has read our books. Thank you. Cause we can't believe that you like it. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're in shock that people are, are, so attracted to what we're putting out. We, we can't believe it ourselves. Yeah, that's know? always such a cool feeling. It's, you know, when people are appreciating the work that you do. Your books are the Tommy Keen Detective Series, yes? Correct. The Tommy Keen Detective Series. The first one is Sister Margaret. The second one is Hayden John Marshall. And the third one is Jenny Black. And uh, again, something that we didn't do intentionally, but we've heard from the reviewers and the, the people on Goodreads and things like that. Each can be read as a standalone um, meaning that, you know, you won't miss anything from the story if you didn't read the previous one. However, you won't know, you know, his backstory if you don't read the yeah. the, the beginning, mm. you know. Now, you also have this really cool fan who kind of helps showcase like the places that your books take place, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. There's a, a young woman named Kay um, who lives in uh, the Yorkville section of Manhattan where there are books take place. OK, uh, which is a neighborhood that my sister and I grew up in. Oh, cool. All right. And what, you know, somehow she stumbled across these books and she was our number, I don't want to say our number one fan because I don't want to insult any other fans, but she's a huge fan and happens to live in the neighborhood. And what she does is she reads the books and she goes out and takes photographs of a lot of the locations are real locations, you know, so the the pub that, you know, Tommy Keene hangs out in a pub called Bailey's Corner Pub. Mm. And when we were kids, it was um, Nash's Cashbox. 
where we used to drink. Okay. I, I, after my brother's wedding, we went drinking at Nash's Cashbox, okay, <laughs> which is now Bailey's Corner Pub, and that's where Tommy Keene hangs out. That's his main place. Okay. It's a real place. So she goes out and takes pictures of the real places, uh, the restaurants, the bars. She'll try to narrow down, and usually you're right, Kay. She'll try to narrow <laughs> down the buildings where she thinks things have happened. Okay, mm-hmm. and she'll take a photograph. This is where so and so lived. This is where this happened, and she'll post it up. And some things she'll rip from the computer, but sometimes she takes the photographs herself and puts them How up. Cool. And I, uh, we just can't. Again, my sister and I can't believe that we have fans at all. That's just a silly thing, you know. No, it's two or awesome. three, you know, we're just we're just regular people, you know. Right. And uh, but now we have fans from all over the world. They they write into us. You can see we have a couple of little short videos on YouTube. Oh. Where people have written in from, you know, England and Australia and, you know, all over the United States. And we're like, wow. That's so cool. This is just wow to me. That, that first of all, that you like what we're doing and that you care enough to actually write in is, it blows us away. It truly does. It's truly the best ever. I love that. It's official Tommy Keen fan page or official fan page. I think it's official Tommy Keen fan page is what it is. Okay. Awesome. Incredible. And can we find you on social anywhere? Well, you know what? Me me being a uh, uh, a bit of a dinosaur, I have nothing for myself. <laughs> nothing at all. I don't have Facebook. I don't have Instagram. I don't do anything. That's probably nice. My sister does. She's uh, She has an Instagram page as a Natasha uh, Myers Marseguera author. Um, and then everything else is done through Bully Press. And really, we don't have a lot of that stuff. And I know we have to get hot with it and get on it because that's the way of the world today but it's just it's just not what we do you know no i get it you focus on writing the books guys go find go find bully press on instagram go find you know katie who's taking the pictures on instagram go find his sister and uh you know go buy his books oh kayla you are a honey so nice to meet you so nice to Um, meet you yeah i hope you do like this let me know the second it does and yeah and if you ever think oh man i'd like to have this fella back of course i loved having you on guys that was travis myers make sure you go buy his series tommy keen detective series Thank you.